Welcome to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. It's a series of long-form, one-on-one conversations with people who have a foot in the world of the artist and a foot in the world of the warrior. It's produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. My guest today was Roman Baca. Roman is a classically trained ballet dancer and choreographer, and in 2001, he enlisted in the United States Marine Corps, where he served as a machine gunner and a fire team leader in Fallujah, Iraq in 2005. After the war, Roman returned to dance and co-founded Exit 12 Dance Company, which tells veteran stories choreographically. He's a graduate of St. Mary's College of California, where he graduated cum laude in the performing arts and was awarded a Fulbright scholarship to the Trinity Laban. I don't know if it's Laban or Laban. Anyway, obviously I'm recording this before I've talked with <laughs> with him about this. Anyway, uh, I, I think it's Trinity Laban. We'll say that. Trinity Laban Conservatoire of Music and Dance in London, United Kingdom, where Roman completed his MFA with merit in choreography. Roman has also provided production support to the critically acclaimed play Soldier Ons, which uh, for their UK tour, which culminated in a six-week run on the West End. He's also a panelist reviewing US-UK Fulbright candidates and has served as a panelist for the National Endowment of the Arts Dance Panel in 2020. He is a PhD candidate investigating the military human through the arts at York St. John University in the UK. He's also an early career researcher at the Trinity Laban Conservatoire. And he's a junior research scientist with the U.S. Air Force and U.S. Navy Research Unit. He's also, because that's not enough, a 2018 Hill Vet nominee. He's a 2015 New York State Veterans Hall of Fame inductee. And he's a 2014 Art and Healing Network awardee. He's also served as a fellow with Veterans and Global Leadership, The Mission Continues, and Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. If that sounds like he's had a really busy uh, uh prolific life he has and what's even better is that he can articulate almost all of it um really enjoyed my conversation with him so much so that uh he's too interesting to do in one fell swoop we had we he had a hard uh time limit to our conversation today because he had another meeting um that he thought he had scheduled enough time in advance but once we got to talking it clearly wasn't the case so today's could be part one of two um, we're booking him. We're bringing him back. And the next episode you'll hear of Savage Wonder will be our part two with Ramon. But today we covered an awful lot of ground. Uh, it took him all the way through, uh, through the Fallujah uh, battles and just super interesting guy as a Marine reservist. He uh, truly embodied the citizen soldier or in this case, artist Marine dynamic. In, in a really unique way. Um, it's rare to have somebody trying to accomplish their art while serving um, and, and deploying and doing all the rest of it. So uh, just really humble, articulate, uh, good natured, uh, fun conversation um, with, with Ramon. And I can't wait for you guys to hear it. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director at veterans repertory theater. And this is the savage wonder of Roman Baca.
welcome to the show. Thanks. Nice to be here. <laughs> so this is London. Is that what I'm looking at? This is. Uh, it's a residential street. It's not very exciting. No, it's all right. I mean, it, just the fact you're so in the age of COVID, the fact that you seem like the last international man that's zipping back and forth between <laughs> New Mexico and London uh, made me think that uh, you got an awful lot going on. That's a pretty exciting life. How was it? How was the, did you have to quarantine going back and forth or what's travel like right now? Earlier in the year, <clears throat> there was a quarantine coming back to the UK um, for 14 days. And so I did a couple trips where I had to quarantine. Okay. But now if you're double vaccinated, they just require a test before day two um, of your return. So the day you fly in is day zero. You just what, have to take did I miss something? What, what's double vaccinated? Is that you got a second shot? You got a second round of the two shots? doses? Yeah. Oh, oh, I see. Okay. You just have both your doses. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. I wasn't sure if we'd been vaccinating for so long that now we were on to our second set of doses. Gotcha. <laughs> um, so I saw today, I'm going to start with, with a question that I, I don't get to ask many people because of the nature of the show, obviously we don't delve into people's physical workout regimens that much, but I saw today you had an Instagram post of your running route. Do you work out like a Marine or do you work out like a dancer? How do you work out? <laughs> uh, the answer is both. Um, so uh, I've been running lately just because, you know, put on the COVID 20, gotcha. 25. Uh -huh. And I started running again just because I figured I should do some cardio. But I also do like uh, a heavy kettlebell regimen. And then uh, I take ballet class every once in a while. Is that nor is kettlebell normal for dancers? Is that gotten filtered into the dance community at all? Or is that really still very much a, a different entity altogether? You know, when I was teaching, um, I discovered kettlebells uh, in like boutique fitness gyms in New York. Huh. And I felt that it was interesting. I felt it was necessary to introduce to my dancers as a way of injury prevention, mm -hmm. functional fitness. And so, you know, teaching dancers from what age 10 on up, we would do like a ballet boot camp in the summer. And I would take my dancers out. We do, you know, kettlebells, box jumps. I'd take them on a formation run, you know, really stuff like that. Just 10, to, just 10 years old, though, they were doing, they were doing kettlebells. Uh, light kettlebells, very light wow. kettlebells. Wow. And, and um, heavily monitored so that they sure. were. Sure. Sure. Employing correct form. And what did you see? What did, what changes did you see in your dancers? Did you just see injury prevention or did you see like core strengthening? Did you see, did they put on more muscle? Did you see more mass in your dancers? No, the only thing I noticed um, positively was a decrease in injuries, an increase in both um, body awareness, muscle awareness, and an increase mm -hmm. in uh, coordination and an increase in jump height. Well, that's a lot of things you say like, yeah, I only saw this, but that's, that's a nice laundry <laughs> list. That's a good laundry list of stuff. Yeah. Wow. So, so I guess let's start at the beginning. Cause I don't want to jump in too much and then I'll have questions that probably could be easily answered if we just knew more of the backstory. So let's sure. start at the beginning. So you're, you were born and raised in New Mexico, right? I was. Yeah. 
And where did dance come in? Because I'm guessing outside of Santa Fe, there probably wasn't a whole lot of dance influence. I did my high school years in Washington State, and I had a, a high school friend who was a ballerina. And she used to tell me all about her stories of dancing at the studio, doing shows, partnering with boys. Um, and I always thought it was interesting. But it wasn't until my last year of high school and after that I decided to actually enroll in a dance class. I moved back to New Mexico to start college and I started dancing uh, there uh, more seriously. And after dancing for about, after dancing in New Mexico for about six months, I got um, a part in a musical. So Seven Brides for Seven Brothers uh. was um, the first musical I did. And it's funny because after dancing for six months, I now look at pictures of that musical and I'm like, wow, I was not that good at all. Um, there's a photo of everyone on stage all doing the same step on the, I think it's the right foot. And I'm on the left, of course. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, being on stage, singing, dancing really captivated me. And so I went on to do more musicals and then got more serious about the study of classical ballet in particular. So, okay, my, my experience with dance, let me preface this by, by getting personal. My experience with dance is when I was acting decades ago um, in the city, and I was told for movement, go take a dance class. So I went to Steps on the Upper West yeah. Side, which you probably yeah, know, absolutely. right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I went there. My mom had danced there. So, and she had danced there for years, uh, both professionally and then as she became a mom and, and got out of the business, she still went and would take tap there just for exercise, but she hadn't been for years. So I went and I took dance classes there and uh, I'll never forget my first day walking in. Um, the dance instructor took one look at me and was like, sweetheart, you are way too old. You will never make it. <laughs> and I was like, I damn, dude, I'm not even here to be a dancer. I'm here for fucking movement classes and you're already tearing me down. So I say that with, with you, I mean, to be already at a senior in high school when you started, did you, do you still feel like that was always, that always has put you at a disadvantage not to be raised from, you know, out of the cradle dancing like so many dancers are? Absolutely. I think it definitely impacted my professional track. Um, I don't think I got an early enough dance education. Um, and an early enough rigorous dance education to do the things I wanted to do as a dancer. So now you go, you get seven brides for seven brothers. You're singing now. Did you sang before or was this new also? I had never sang before. I mean, I sang in church. Okay. I'm always off key. You're awesome. Um, so you're on the I wrong think- foot and off key. So you got it <laughs> yeah, all going. Absolutely. You're a double threat so far. Okay. So, so, but, but that was the bug. That's when you got the bug. Absolutely. Though. Yeah. Okay. And at that, and now when, uh, we're still pre 9 11, I'm assuming. Yes, this was um, in the 90s. Okay. And so um, where do you go from there? So now you're in New Mexico doing musical theater. What does one do when the musical theater bug hits you in New Mexico? I started dancing in New Mexico more seriously and started okay. dancing with a uh, New Mexico ballet company and a few smaller ballet companies and started dancing at the university as well. Um, and it's where I got some of my, uh, earliest and most interesting, 
uh, roles in classical ballet. I did some very socially conscious work. Um, one work at the university was about children in the Dresden concentration camps during wow. World War II. Um, kind of imagined through the drawings that they did. And then uh, another one was about a, 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 an island of families that lost their children to a, a, a tsunami or a big wave and about the grief that these that the parents were going through uh, having lost their children. So early early on, particularly in college, I got exposed to more of a rigorous ballet education and the connection of like dance and social social themes and difficult themes. So I, I, this is going to sound, I'm going to try to make this not sound like condescending or New York snobberish, snobbish or anything like that. But, and, and also I should stipulate I'm dance illiterate. So I don't, yeah. th- there may be stuff like this that have been going sure. on in New York, but as a New Yorker, my sense of dance was, you know, classical ballet, you know, what have you. And um, I never heard of socially conscious dance. That was not in my purview. Do you find that that was happening in New Mexico and around you because you were out of the mainstream of, let's say, dance culture, and therefore people would take those risks because they were like, hey, we, we need to do something else. There needs to be another, uh, let, let's play to our strengths as opposed to trying to mimic New York. Is that fair? I think I think it was a combination of that and the fact that it was um, at university. So universities mm, take okay. a little bit more risk um, because they're not as concerned with putting butts in seats. And how did you find yourself as a dancer there? Were you middle of the pack? Were you, man, I'm a prodigy. I just am getting to it late. What, how did you find yourself fitting in? Physically? Back then, I thought I was incredible. I thought, <laughs> I, was, I, thought I was God's gift. Um, looking, looking back, uh, I... I needed a lot of help. I don't think I, I don't think I got the education that I needed at the time. Uh, luckily, um, a mentor of mine suggested that I move to the East Coast and attend a conservatory out there uh, called the Nutmeg Conservatory for the Arts. Concentrated ballet education by ballet professionals and a strong emphasis on performance. And so I left New Mexico, moved out to the East Coast, um, enrolled into the Nutmeg Conservatory for the Arts for the summer, expecting that I would stay for the summer and then figure it out. And then I was offered a year-long program and then accepted into their postgraduate program in ballet. And so I did a, a postgraduate program in ballet there got a more rigorous education and started dancing for some, uh, bigger companies. So I'm assuming not everybody that was coming out of your college was getting offered those opportunities. So you clearly were standing out. Is that fair? Um, I, I want to balance your ex- expectations. I don't think I was standing out. I was passionate about it mm. and I, I had connections. Um, okay. A friend of a friend knew somebody at nutmeg and they took a look at me and saw that I was strong and able and thought, yeah, we can, we can hit this guy with a sledgehammer and make him a dancer. You know, is, was that what was physically standing out about you? Cause, and this is uh, my, this is my expectations <laughs> talking about adjusting them. Uh, what, what 
I would imagine is that you were probably physically robust. You hadn't had that, as you say, from you hadn't been incubated in the dance world from the cradle. So you had probably more mass to you, I imagine, than a lot Absolutely. of other dancers. But you probably had a great line. I'm, I'm guessing just a naturally good line that you stood out on stage and they thought there's something raw that we can work with here. I had a good line. I was strong. I was very good at partnering. Mm. Um, the, the kind of part of ballet where, uh, men and women dance together and the woman is on point shoes and the man helps her, you know, glide across stage. He lifts her up and makes her look like she's floating across stage, helps her turning so that instead of doing, you know, three, four turns with help, she can do like 10 to 20, Mm. um, and I was, I, I, that's what I gravitated towards. Cause I thought it was so much fun just negotiating, um, another person's weight balance and technique so that, uh, they could look spectacular on stage. So you liked it as a team sport, really? I, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. And is, was nutmeg in Connecticut? I'm just yes. making a it's leap of assumptions here. Okay. Northwest Connecticut. Yeah. Northwest Connecticut. So when you go out there, this is all paid for. So you don't have to worry about making a living because you're still in school, quote unquote, and everything's being provided, right? I So my tuition was covered. I still had to work part-time, you know, odd jobs to cover like rent and food. Okay. And at what point were you, was the practical side of your mind going, What's my exit plan here? How do I, you know, monetize this? How do I get out and go into finance? Like, what, what were you, what were you thinking? What was the, what was the end game, or how are you taking it? Yeah, I, you know, at the time, I didn't know what was in the cards for the future. I had so many voices chiming into what I wanted to do. I wanted to dance. I wanted to choreograph. I wanted to be an artist. But then, you know, you have on one hand, a Russian teacher who grew up at the Bolshoi knows what classical ballet is supposed to look like, telling me, you know, you won't dance in a professional company unless, right. you know, you're in the back line, you're a spear holder. Um, and then, you know, other people telling me that I, you know, should pursue other opportunities. And there wasn't, looking back, there wasn't that one voice to be like, you know, you could dance for a contemporary company you could pursue other opportunities that are outside of strict classical ballet and you could succeed um there was most of the voices were you know you should do something else and i tried to stifle those voices as best i could and i started guesting as a professional dancer so dancing with smaller companies in connecticut new york um in productions making, you know, a couple hundred dollars here, a couple hundred dollars there and dancing on stage. And I kept doing that um, while fighting, you know, those voices in my head from my teachers that said I would never make it. And, you know, the looks from like people who, you know, you tell you're a ballet dancer and they kind of give you an odd look or, you know, dads of girlfriend or girls you were dating that, you know, are, are like, you're dating my daughter and you're a dancer. Like what kind of like future does that pave? And uh, so I think at the time, as hard as I fought 
to follow the professional path being a ballet dancer. Um, the voices overpowered me as well as the lack of satisfaction in the work that I was doing. So <clears throat> most of the work was, you know, like you said, New York classical ballet, like Swan Lake Sleeping Beauty, Midsummer Night's Dream. Very little of it had that kind of social, social voice, social impact voice. And you felt like you weren't connecting with the material as much. Is that what I'm picking up? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And you also made the tactical mistake of not of, dan of dating outside of other dancers. So they might not understand dance. If you've just been dating other ballet dancers, it might've worked out. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. So, so I, I, I maybe should have delved into this earlier, but athletically had you played sports in school? What was your, what was your physical background coming in before you started dance? I, I wasn't a jock by any means. Mm -hmm. I like, uh, did some bike riding with family members and I played soccer um, in high school, but I wasn't very good at soccer either. So outside of the team aspect of, of partner dance, what was it that was appealing to you about it? Was it the thrill of being on stage? Was it the thrill of a live audience? What was it? I, I think it was that as well as um, the intellectual pursuit of the study of classical ballet. It's a very complicated art form. Um, the physicality of it, uh, I mean, moving, dancing, jumping, releases endorphins made me feel good. Um, and the ability to express yourself on stage and express uh, emotions. I mean, you must feel the same way acting, you know, being able to put on a character and delve into, you know, emotions that you either have felt and want to express or emotions that you might not have investigated and want to delve deeper into and see if you can make those come alive on stage. Well, it's been about 20 years since I was an actor, so I've got a lot <laughs> repressed, but yeah, yeah, no, that's right. I know. I think, I think De Niro said something like that once where he said, they said, what, what, what's your thrill of acting? And he said, because I get to live someone else's life without any consequences. And I think there's, oh, wow, you know, a cool way of thinking of it, you know, that's profound, um, yeah. Right. So, but what's interesting to me is that you weren't naturally running around juicing off endorphins up until then. It was kind of like yeah. this found you and kind of unleashed the whole physical side of your life that you hadn't really been diving into up until then. Absolutely. Wow. And so, at this point, while you're going around gigging, doing these small um, guest appearances, were you, had you given up singing? Was musical theater done or was that all? Singing an option? was done. Singing I was done. hold a tune to save my life. Yeah. Okay. So, so you didn't need many voices to talk you out of that. That, that one <laughs> no. died on its own. Okay. All right. And, and so um, tell me about the, when you say the intellectual pursuit of classical dancing, what does that mean? Just the history of it, the the stories behind Balanchine, or what 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 is it? What does that mean exactly? Pardon me while I nerd out for a second. So okay, go for it. Uh, the Vaganova technique it was what I studied in, and it's um, it's it came over from Russia. Uh, there was a famous ballet teacher by the name of Agrippa Vaganova that wrote what we call the Vaganova Bible. It's basically a book 
that she wrote that sets out how to do every single exercise. And then from that, um, she designed her class methodologically so that it challenges the body in a way that like functional fitness is always surprising the body in order to make it grow. So if you think of a classical ballet class, it starts with plies, bending of the legs at the knee, like squats, right? Um, and then it goes with like tondus, like leg extensions, um, sliding the foot out from the feet together, sliding one foot out in front of you, using the floor for friction so that there's resistance. And it's done slow first and then fast. And then you go back to another slow exercise where you're actually lifting the leg off the floor, getting a little bit more resistance by the weight of the leg, lifting the leg higher. Then it goes back to another slow exercise and then a fast exercise, lifting the leg higher, rotating it through uh, all the directions that a leg can go through, opening up the hip a bit, increasing flexibility. And so that's a small taste of just a bit of how complicated dance can be. Um, once you study body alignment, you study anatomy, how the body is supposed to stand, then you put the exercises on top of that, layer on top of that, what the exercises are supposed to do for the body and how they're supposed to train the body. And then layer on top of that, how to structure a class so that these exercises can work in tandem with one another to eventually produce a, a dancer and produce an art form within a body that can be dynamic, expressive, um, textured, and explosive on stage. So the physiological aspect was really appealing to you. It's almost like people that get into CrossFit or get into yoga and just really start to study and nerd out on, on all those details. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. I've been nerding out on ballet since, since nutmeg. And it hasn't waned. Like that's maintained, like it still is as fascinating and you're still finding layers and depth to it. The only thing that I has waned is what I want to do with it. It's kind of, mm. you know, taken such a odd trajectory, you know, mm. from studying at nutmeg to dancing professionally to segue into the military, coming out of the military and starting a dance company. And then, you know, trying to decide where to place my efforts, my research and my intelligence so that I can make the most of this life with dance. Yeah. It's an interesting problem set that you have. Cause uh, I mean, obviously our podcast tries to focus on that warrior artist divide and um, you embody that maybe more than most even. Um, and I would imagine that's a very strange unbushwhacked path to go down. Like there's not a lot of precedent. So did you have, well, now sitting where you are now, do you have role models that you look at and go, well, they kind of did something similar or is it, or, or are you like, no, I'm in uncharted territory and I really, and this takes up all your bandwidth, just figuring out what does right look like for an unprecedented effort. I, I'm going to challenge your podcast listeners to prove me wrong, but I believe I'm in uncharted waters. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there was a time when I tried to go the typical artistic director path of a ballet company. And I ran a ballet company in Connecticut for four years. Um, and before that I 
you know, was an artistic director of their Nutcracker and several shows. And, you know, I had a mentor sit me down and, and they were like, you know, you can do this, what you're doing, being a typical artistic director. You can be just like all the other artistic directors in the world, leading a ballet company and doing things like creating ballets to put butts in seats about storybooks and, you know, well-told tales. Or you can set out, you can continue on this path that you created of being a Marine who started a ballet company and really investigating this work that you've chosen to investigate. And, you know, he said that to me at a very sensitive yet pivotal time in my life. And, and it made me recommit to this path. Before I ask any other questions on that, we probably should keep setting the table a little bit. So let me dive back into your professional career before the military then. So you were gigging around and then you started to get proper paid work, I'm assuming, right? Where you were like, hey, I'm making a living and this is my career path and I don't necessarily need to second guess myself for the time being, right? No, I was still gigging. Um, Ballet gigs aren't well paid. Uh, And I, so I was working a, a second job as well. And I think that's the introduction into this poll of like, can I really make this happen as a dancer or do I need to try something else? And how old were you at the, when nine 11 happens or right, you know, 2001, how old are you at that point? 20, 25 or 26. Okay. So you were still young enough that maybe you weren't totally thinking about marriage, family, how to support kids, all that stuff. Right. So, so there was a little bit of carefreeness still. Um, but April, 2001, you're still thinking, yeah, you know, this is, this is the path I'm on. I'm, I'm relatively comfortable here doing two jobs, doing the starving artist thing and, and trying to make it work. Right. I think it was around the summer of, um, 2000, I started to have, uh, significant, uh, anxiety about one, Mm -hmm following this path and two, not doing work like the work I was doing in New Mexico, the socially conscious work, but the work that mattered. And I think a big part of it was I wanted to do something that mattered. I wanted to help others. I wanted to be of service. Um, My, my grandfather was in the Korean war. His four, his three brothers spanned the branches of the military um, my family structure on my mother's side was a family structure of giving, helping, being of service. And I missed that, uh, by being a dancer, not saying it didn't happen. There were things that we did, but I didn't feel totally fulfilled, um, doing what I was doing. I think there has to be a degree of narcissism. And I use that word advisedly in the arts and it's not ill-placed. It's because if you don't care about what you're doing and if you don't prioritize that as the most important thing in the world and, and see that your world revolves around it, nobody else is going to. So it kind of makes you a little mercenary and narcissistic by nature. So I, I could see that where you start to go, well, it's not, you know, I'm not working in a soup kitchen. You know, I'm, I, it's definitely, um, it has to be about you. 
but your art kind of needs that also. It's a weird dynamic that way. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me. How did your family, how'd your family feel about you being a, a dancer? Was there pressure from them? So by now I had moved to the East coast and while I still stayed in touch with my family, I, I don't think they necessarily agreed with my chosen life path, but they weren't too vocal about it. Okay. So you, so you weren't feeling a whole lot of pressure necessarily from them. They weren't the voices in your head. They were catching you one way or another. No, it was mainly, you know, peer pressure, the people around me, um, my, my big influences in my life that were present. It, how were you fitting in, I guess, for lack of a better word, I mean, socially in the dance world, when you, in, in the summer of 2000, when you start to kind of um, feel like there's something missing, did you feel like there was a social network that understood you? You felt part of the community and you're like, I just got to figure out a way to make this work. Or were you like, I'm not even sure if these are my people. I'm not even sure if this is where I'm supposed to be. Was it that kind of existential crisis socially? I think piggybacking off something you said that, you know, the dance is narcissistic, especially in New York city, when you are, or when I, back then, when I was trying to do something in dance, everyone else is trying to do it too and hustle and try to get jobs and going to auditions. And so you're constantly fighting the fight against everyone else who's trying to do the same thing. And so I think, I didn't pursue a social aspect to my profession because I felt that it would harm my chances of, of booking a gig or, or being chosen at an audition. Um, plus the hustle just makes the social part really, really hard. So you were feeling, were you feeling like a square peg in a round hole a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Totally. And how did you feel um, physically now that you're in the flow, you're doing the New York city thing with all these kids that I'm assuming came out of the incubator, you know, uh, from an early age, did you feel like you were holding your own? Did you feel like technically you're like, Oh God, there's a, I, I'm, I'm not as strong in, in X, Y, and Z as I should be. How, how are you feeling? Physically? I was strong. Okay. Technically I was deficient. There did you feel just, like you were making up ground though? Or did you feel like, no. Okay. Really interesting. So in the summer of 2000, when it seems like you had that first decision point, were you considering the military? Was that on your radar or were you think, what were your options? If you were like, if I bail on this, where do I go? So one of my side jobs was uh, working in a bakery and the bakery was owned by this lovely woman named Margaret. And she became a really dear friend of mine. Her father was a chosen Marine in uh, Korea, served in the Korean War, uh, survived the chosen reservoir. Wow. And he used to visit all the time and we used to chat. And, you know, looking back, there were certain points in my life where Marines had been influential. Um, I had a former soccer coach that was a Marine, you know, kick my butt when it needed to be kicked. Um, you know, Margaret's dad being a chosen Marine and just kind of talking about the future and her talking about the future. Um, a couple of the Marines in my life that were there when, you know, mentorship or an ear was needed. And 
or a butt kicking to be frank. And so I, when kind of considering this, I decided to go talk to the Marine recruiter and just see what was possible. And I walked in, I remember walking into the recruiter's office and, you know, full-fledged artist by this point. I had red hair. I dyed my hair red. It's black because this is a podcast. Um, I had two earrings. I had an earring in each ear. Um, the big kind of like, you know, goth earrings. And, um, and I walked in and I said, you know, I want to learn how to help people. And I want to gain the tools to help people and to be of service to those around me. And the recruiter said, yeah, you can, you can do that in the Marine Corps. And I said, okay, let's, let's do it. And that was before 9-11, that was 2000 still. That was okay. in 2000, summer of 2000. So when did you push off to boot camp? I shipped in October. So you're there. Uh probably until the holidays is when you got out of basic, right? Out of boot camp and went to SOI. Okay. Yeah. And and I, I'm 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 not totally literate on on my marine, but uh you know I'm <laughs> I'm I'm sort of fluent in marine, but not totally. Um if you guys don't pick your MOS going in, right? You get assigned it at the end of boot camp. I'm basing most of this off full metal jacket, but you, isn't that right? You can't so you can. Um okay. I had I had chosen to go into aviation because, okay. you know, back, back then they gave everybody in high school, the ASVAB, I scored like in a high percentile. And so aviation was an option for me. Um, but then I started questioning aviation, decided I wanted to do something different, started talking to the recruiter about it. And he told me about this really fun job, um, firing missiles at tanks. Oh, okay. Uh, All right. A tow gunner. Tow gunner. Anti-tank missile assaultment. So I decided to go infantry. So that was all decided before you went, before you shipped out. Okay. All right. Yes, it was. And so, um, so then you get out, you go through SOI, right? And then where did you head off to? Were you Pendleton? Were you Lejeune? So I was a reservist. Okay. Um, I was, uh, slated into a tow platoon in okay. Chicopee, Massachusetts, um, a whole platoon of tow gunners who fire missiles at tanks. So this, wait, this is, so that makes a ton of sense. So now <laughs> so you're a reservist, so you can still dance. Yeah. So you, you are literally trying to walk that line. You are going to be the dancer Marine, uh, literally at the same time. I was, I was doing my best, sometimes not the best decisions in the world, but yeah, I was trying to walk the line. And so in your mind, the way you saw this playing out, obviously not knowing that 9-11 was going to happen, was that, hey, one weekend a month, I'm going to go get trained to do good for people. And that kind of takes care of the socially conscious part of my life. And then the rest of the time, I can be obsessed about me and my dance and my career. Is that, I say how that plays out? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then 9 11 fucked that all up. It absolutely did. <laughs> so, what, so, where were you professionally on 9 11? Were you working? Where did you have a job? Were you dancing actively at that time? I was working a side job. Um, 
with a, a dear friend in Connecticut. And we were at his office when 9-11 happened. And we flipped on the TV and saw the planes crash into the tower. And I immediately got on the phone to the unit. I was like, you know, when are we going? Where are we going? You know, we should be <laughs> in my uh, idiocy. We should be in our home V's headed to New York City to help, um, you know. But it's not, it's not, not at all idiotic. I mean, that was the time and place for it. That's right. Yeah. And all hands were needed. Um, how had you been liking the Marine Corps up till that point? Had it been everything you wanted it to be? Was it disappointing? Was it fulfilling? It was, it was interesting. Um, I think I was a little hard headed. Um, a hard headed Marine. So you must have not have been able to fit in. <laughs> I, uh, you know, clashed with some of my superiors, didn't make the best decisions. And then to kind of top it off, you know, had this artistic streak that uh, led to a little bit of rebelliousness, but not in the typical Marine rebellious way that you'd probably think. So what is that? Okay. I can't help but ask, and you can, you can decline and tell me it's none of my business, but what does that mean exactly? Uh, you know, just, doing stupid things um we got deployed to camp lejeune in 2001 to uh basically be on in reserve if we were needed anywhere because okay. all of the rest of the marine units were deploying at, at breakneck speed sure and so we're in camp lejeune you know we're doing the the active duty marine thing and um uh, one day the uh, gunny comes out and he's like, Hey, I need somebody to volunteer who can drive a car and who's a good swimmer. And I had swam all my life, um, had done, you know, uh, the highest swim call you can do at boot camp. So I was qualified. So, and I had brought my POV uh, all the way down from uh, the East Coast, uh, Northeast Coast. So I volunteered. And uh, next thing I knew, I was training to be a lifeguard uh, on Camp Lejeune uh, while we were there. All the rest of my unit is training to get ready to go to, like, Afghanistan if we were needed. And I'm in an Olympic-sized pool every day, pulling on, you know, lifeguard uniform and Oakleys and, and swimming laps. So that actually sounds like a pretty good decision. That sounds like a, 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 a good decision point for you. You know, it was, it was, it added some, a different perspective, you know, of what the Marines were and what the Marines could be. Um, in another point when I was at my unit in Massachusetts, um, we had gotten a changeover of our leadership. And um, the gunny and the captain had retired and they brought in a new gunny and captain. And the old ones were a little more flexible. It was peacetime. Mm -hmm. You know, they would let you do crazy crap, like, you know, take the Humvees by yourselves to a Toys for Tots event, do the Toys for Tots event, come back, yada, yada, yada. If you need to get out of drill, you just called them up and you're like, hey, I got something going on. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I'll make it up next weekend or, you know, do another shift. And so this was the kind of culture that existed before our new leadership came. And 
I was still dancing. I was coaching. Um, and I was still kind of doing stuff with, with the conservatory that I graduated from. And when I was teaching this one ballet that I had learned when I was there to a group of dancers, and there was this one really, really tall dancer, a uh, female from Alabama, who I was teaching this ballet to. And because all of the other boys were younger and ballet dancers, it was really hard for them to partner with her because she was mm. on point shoes. She was about six feet, six mm. foot one. Um, and so, you know, because of my strength, I could partner her really, really well. So it turns out the one of the ballet companies where she's from decided to have this gala uh, and wanted her to perform. And so they asked me if I would come and do this duet with her. And I was like, yeah, sure, you know, whatever, I'll do it. Um, I'll, you know, get some extra money. I'll get on stage again. It'll be fun. Um, and then the drill schedule came out and I had drill the same yeah. week. And I was like, all right. Um, I'll just call the unit and tell them that I have something else and you know, I'll make it up. And the new command was like, no, you, you can't do that. And so now you have the situation where I'm going back in my head, back and forth in my head about like, how do I solve this problem? Right. Like I've committed to this thing in Alabama. I have drilled that weekend. What the heck am I going to do? So in my youthful uh, stupidity. I, we have a term for it now. I ghosted the unit and <laughs> went and performed in the gala. And when I got back, um, I made up this wild story that I had passed out in my apartment sick and my roommate was away and I didn't wake up for three days. And the unit was like, BS. I don't know if you're. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can curse. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was like bullshit. And I was like, okay, well then I have to go get a doctor's note. So I went to this. um, Oh, you doubled down. Oh oh, yeah, I did. Oh wow. And the doctor backed me up and was like, okay, yeah, that's, I guess that could happen and wrote (laughs) me a note. So of course, back then, you know, they're, so then the Marine Corps is going to be like, okay, we're going to play fuck, fuck games with you then. So they're like, okay, well, fax us the doctor's note. So I faxed in the doctor's note. They're like, we didn't get it. Fax us the doctor's note. Uh, so then I, you know, fax them again, fax them again. Didn't get it. Didn't get it. Um, just bring it to drill with you when you come next time. So I'm like, great. Show up to drill. And they're like, all right, gun, the gunny wants to see you. And I was like, great. So then, it, you know, uh, military by now, the fuck, fuck games. So they're like, okay, uh, sit outside the gunny's office. He'll be with you when he's ready. Yeah. You know, you know how long that wait is. Um, and then just before, actually just after everybody got punched for the day, I walk into the gunny's office and sit down and he grills me and I hold fast to my story. And he just, looks to me and he says, you know, if that's what happened, then that's what happened. But I just want you to remember that the things you do and the decisions you make will resonate and they will impact people far beyond, you know, 
And so he urged me to do the right thing in the future because it's the right thing to do. And yeah, that was. Man, you got out of it though. You survived. I survived. Point being, so that's the lesson for all the kids out there. If you're going to lie, make that bulletproof and stick to it till the bitter end. Yeah. (laughs) Holy crime. Get a doctor to (laughs) back back you up. up. Yeah. So, I mean, that, I mean, first off, I should say at that time, literally at about that same time, 2000, 2001, I was thinking what you just described was exactly the reason I did not enlist. Um, Because, yeah, because at the time I was doing stand up and I was acting and I was starting to direct and I, yeah, I'd always loved the military. I always been like fascinated by it and was like, yeah, it'd be really cool. But I was like, I don't know how you work that into an artistic pursuit. And I was like, and I, my mom who had, you know, been an actress and been on Broadway and all this. And she said, she's like, you're a fucking idiot. She's like, don't you dare do that. She's like, because it'll ha- every time you'll get a big break, there'll be some military commitment that's going to take you away. Don't do it. And up in heaven right now, she's nodding and going, yeah, see, motherfucker, that's what I would have told you. But um, that said, it didn't end up mattering for me anyway, because I ended up going in and she <laughs> she rude the day anyway. But point being, but that's funny, because that's that's exactly the horror story that was always in my mind. Um, did they know you were a, a dancer? No. So you that you did not share that you were don't ask, don't tell on dancing. I, I found out in boot camp that it was a bad idea. You probably knew that before boot camp, even, but you you took the gamble. I thought it would be interesting to like tell a couple of the guys and tell my senior drill instructor so that he knew that he had made a ballet dancer marine. Okay, and that didn't play well for me, <laughs> so I decided to shut up about it. There was no pun on being a tow gunner. <laughs> that never came I've up. Never heard that before. That's really? Crazy. Oh God! I mean, where's the wit? No, no wit in the Marine Corps. No That's wit. so disappointing. Um, so, did anyone at your unit ever know? Did you tell any peers or anybody like that? Not until Fallujah in 2005. Okay, we'll get there. But now I have an image of you dodging bullets in Fallujah and saying, Hey, if we die, you should know I'm, I'm a ballet dancer, <laughs> but we'll get to that in a second. Okay. Did anyone in the ballet world know you were a Marine? Was that something you talked about? They did. They did because you know, the ballet world, especially um, around the nutmeg conservatory became like family okay. and they knew the decision I had made. They knew that I had gone into the military. Yeah. What was knew. the response? Um, were they like my mom? Did they think you just killed your career? A lot of them were, were proud that I had stepped up to serve my country. Okay. There were a couple of my dear friends that thought I was going to change for the worse, that the Marines were going to make me a killer. Um, and so there was some concern from a couple of people. No concerns career-wise. Nobody looked at you and was like, how are you going to manage this? Are you going to dance and do the Marines? Um, I think, you know, at the time, I was I was not dancing as much as I was prior to the Marine Corps. Okay. And I was still doing, like, odd jobs and stuff. And I think people were used to me sliding in and out of, you know, jobs to keep food on the table. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. Physically, how did you change after basic SOI, all that stuff? You come back. How, first off, was there overall just any physical change? Had you lost weight, gained weight? What were you like? When I, of course, boot camp, I lost weight. Everybody loses weight in boot camp. Um, I lost weight. SOI, I started working out. Um, you know, dancing, I just took ballet class and, you know, did odd push up, sit up, pull up, that kind of thing. I'd never religiously worked out with weights. But when I joined the Marine Corps, I started tossing dumbbells around. And so I, between SOI and my first couple of months with the unit, I went from 175 pounds, 5'11", to 190 pounds, 5'11", um, just throwing the dumbbells around. So I was, I was getting stronger and bigger. Were you a slender dancer prior to the Marine Corps? If you weren't working out with weights, I mean, were you somebody who was like, smoke a pack of cigarettes so you don't have to eat and that kind of thing? No, um, I ate well, but I just didn't put on weight. Um, oh, okay. Cause I was dancing all the time. So now, I, but now you were beefy. Now you actually horrible. came back and you were like, yeah. you had real muscle tone. And what did the dance community think of that? Was that, did you find any difference in auditions? Did you find any difference in tryouts for things? Um, or just your, the response from the people that knew you in the dance world? Um, I, so at this point I was like, I knew that I was changing and I knew that, um, while the weight gain and the muscle gain would help me in partnering, um, it didn't do me any favors technically. Right. Um, I started to lose flexibility, um, and technique started to suffer. And so this is about when I, I started considering stepping away from ballet and doing something completely different. It's interesting. I was thinking this while you're talking physically, I mean, how you feel obviously determines, you know, is determined a lot of times by physically, you know, how you're feeling emotionally, your, your emotions play off the physicality and all that. So I was wondering if, you know, you feel like a dancer prior to boot camp because you're in a dancer's body, you're dancing all the time to be away from dance then for that many months and to see your body go through changes. It's not surprising to me that then you would start to go, I'm not even sure I'm a dancer anymore at this yeah. point. Right. Plus, you know, with the, the things that were going on in the world, like with nine 11 happening, it's like, okay, like I can go like twirl around on stage or I can, you know, get on with, or what I thought back then is a responsible life, you know, try to cobble a life together, lean into the Marine Corps a bit and try to be a good Marine um, and be ready if, if we got the call. So what would that have meant um, had you doubled down on that? Would it have meant that you would have tried to go active? Would it have meant that, hey, I'll keep doing Marine Reserve, but I'll look at um, you know, a civilian option that kind of complements that? Um, or would it have been just some other type of civilian career? Um, gosh, I don't even remember. I was, I was really like having a career crisis back then trying to decide like what that meant, how I could move forward professionally with the skills I didn't have. Um, and yet stay in 
you know, good shape working out so that if the unit got called to service, like I would be ready to go. And so it was, it was tough. It was tough trying to commit to a career path and being like the whole world's at war. Like you better be ready. Sorry. You just, I just, while you were talking and, and I'm, and I'm thinking of that decision point that you're at, it reminded me of a seminal moment that I've totally forgotten in my life, but I think you'll get kicked out of it. You're because of the dance background. I think you'll appreciate this. I remember when I was a kid in the video store, back when they had proper video stores, yeah. you could see all the movies on the shelves and all that. And uh, I remember seeing a movie that to this day I've never seen called Defcon four. And it was on the shelves. And I just remember the suit. It was like, I was in like this spaceman suit and it was Armageddon, you know, uh, apocalypse, you know, post-apocalyptic world and some, you know, green fog is around him or something. And he's in this spaceman suit and he's got like a gun and, you know, all this. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. I was like, you know, the, my whatever it was, eight, nine, 10 year old self was like, oh, yeah, definitely. I want to do that. And then that night I went home and we watched a Fred Astaire movie and I uh, saw Fred Astaire dancing. I was like, oh, man, that's awesome. I'd love to do that. And then I was like, is there any way you can do Fred Astaire and be the guy in, in DEFCON 4? And that was literally your life. You were little, literally amazing. the embodiment of, of, that, of that decision. Um, I can't imagine, yeah, how to square that circle. And it seems it, that's, amazing. that's incredible that you were actually going through the, all those decision markers. So after 9-11, you're in the Marines. You're, ready, you're down at Camp Lejeune. When do you how many times did you deploy? Did you only deploy the once or did you end up going on multiple deployments? We only deployed once. So okay. we got sent to Camp Lejeune in 2001 and we were uh, demobbed in like 2002, like middle of 2002, because okay. it was that wane between Afghanistan and the start of Iraq where they were like, we don't know what we're going to do. So we got sent home. And how did career-wise now, what did that do to you? Because now you're losing time, you're getting older, you're in the Marine world, even if you're just lifeguarding it up, you're still yeah. in the Marine world. So, I mean, now, I mean, were you able to practice dance on your own? Like, were no. you literally in a closet practicing? Any, okay, so you're just, you're, you're, the, the talent is atrophying, sort of, yeah, the physicality. Absolutely. And so yeah. when you got back, how was that existential career crisis going for you? Um, I decided to do something completely different. Um, I started looking for, you know, better paying jobs where I could start making a life. And were, were there any other considerations or was it just that, I mean, were you starting to have a family and all that, or was it more that, Hey, I, I'm just so far away from dance. Now my head's just not there. And I can't, I, there's no, I, I can't justify continuing down that path. It was, it was the second. I, okay. I just felt like I had stepped so far away that there was no returning mm. and there was no more balance anymore. I mean, if there ever was, but yeah. the balance had been tipped so far in the other direction that. And you were down for it, right? I mean, you were, you were open to if the Marines called and, and you needed to double down in, in that life or any other, you were, you were open to it at this point. Absolutely. You were, you know. Yeah. So, and then it was a quick turnaround then, right. Before you pushed out to Iraq or was that uh, a year or two? We got back 
in 2002. And then we got the word that we were deploying in 2000 and like early 2005. Oh, okay. All right. So, so what were you doing at that point? Had you totally dropped dance at this point? I had totally dropped dance. Wow. I was um, working a desk job at a newspaper. And how was that? Monotonous. <laughs> were you Boring. any regrets? I mean, were any at the time, were there any regrets or were you like, well, this is what progress looks like, I guess. There weren't any regrets about stepping away from dance at the time. I felt like I was progressing in a way that I thought was right at the time. Okay. Did you miss dance? Were there moments where you peer longingly out the window? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, cause I worked for the newspaper. I would, uh, you know, one of their clients was nutmeg. And so I'd go take pictures oh. of the dancers and, you know, keep the relationship good, um, as much as I could, but, um, yeah, I getting back into it. It wasn't in the cards at the time or in the thinking. How did that feel to interact with them? Was it kind of like going back and seeing an old girlfriend? Was it like, Hey, this is, I remember who I used to be. I remember when you guys were all my peers. It was a little Extremely bit of that. Extremely odd. Absolutely. Yeah. It felt really, really weird. What was the reaction? Because the passion was still there. Yeah, uh, totally. And what was their reaction? Were they like, hey, you should have stuck with it? Or was it? Did anybody try to pep talk you? Or was it kind of sympathy? Oh, poor guy. You didn't stick with it? or There wasn't really any of that. You know, I mean, every once in a while, they'd be like, hey, you should come take class. Or, you know, there's... Uh, we're working out in the studio, working on some stuff. You should come by. And I, it just wasn't at the time. It wasn't in my thinking. It wasn't yeah. something I was thinking about. How were you as a Marine at that point? You'd had one deployment to Camp Lejeune. You'd, you know, kind of been in for a minute. So how was that going? Yeah. You know, um, by then I had, uh, been promoted to corporal. I was an NCO. And so, you know, leading a group of Marines and doubling down, like, trying to make every single bit of training relevant and stick and make sense and, you know, make the most of every chance we got to hone our craft because the whispers were there that, you know, we were going to go somewhere. And were you thinking the newspaper job was going to be a career? Were were you considering that as a career option or was that just kind of a bandaid until you, figured out what civilian life needed to look like for you. I didn't enjoy it very much. It was just a bandaid until I, until I figured something out. Gotcha. And so then you get called up and for your one deployment, they, they made a count. (laughs) You know, we, we got the, we got the phone call. Like I remember getting the phone call like 5 AM. Right. Cause my last name's Baca. So I'm like, what? Number two, number three on the list that they have the phone call. So it's like five, 6 a.m. in the morning. I hear the answering machine click on because I didn't answer the phone. Who's calling me that early? And I hear it's the unit. And I jump up and they're like, blah, 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 blah. They have to read that whole statement. You know what I mean? And um, none of it includes where we're going. I've, I've, just, never, I've never heard that. Was Is it just a very anodyne statement that says well, they, they talk in a monotone and are like, you are yeah. now being deployed too. Yeah, they're country. reading a, a piece okay. of paper that's yeah. an order that is written to tell you that you're got you. Yeah. That's unnerving. Mobilized. Yeah. And 
it was through the, you know, the grapevine that you hear, we're going to this place called Fallujah. And at the time, nobody knew what Fallujah was or how bad it was. And, you know, everybody's trying to do research. Everybody's trying to figure out more. And we're just like, I guess we're going to Iraq, you know, and who the hell knows what's going to happen. So was your unit, um, because you were a tow company, right? So yeah. you, do you guys don't deploy though as a unit, do you? Do you kind of, or do you deploy as a unit, but then break off and go to different, get attached to different other units? So here's the weird thing is um, at the time we were only like 60 some strong. And so they connected us to two other units, one unit out of Ohio, an artillery unit, and another artillery unit out of California. And they cross-trained us in machine guns. And so we basically became machine gunners so that we could run uh, mounted patrols. Got you. And uh, what was your train-up like? How long was your pre-mob before you guys actually? uh, We did three months in 29 Palms, California, uh, right next to Joshua Tree so that we could get acclimatized to the heat. Yep. And how long, uh, was that your first time in 29 Palms? That was my first time in 29 Palms. Have it you been back? sucked. Have you ever no. gone back to Joshua Tree? <laughs> oh, hell no. It's so funny. <laughs> I, I have I have family that lives in Joshua Tree and uh, we always go out there and uh, it's, um, I'm glad I was not a Marine. And I'm glad I was not stationed there because I would hate that place. And I like yeah. going out there, but it's great to go out when you're not having to run sand hills, you know, next oh, door. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so then you, so what was your attitude during Primo? Were you G'd up for it? Were you like, hell yeah, my life is moving forward. I'm about to get in the fight, become a real Marine, do God's work. I mean, what was your attitude, um, going into it? Were you like, oh shit. All right. Asshole puckering and prepare for impact. You're such a good interviewer because you asked the most amazing questions. <laughs> and then I'm, and then I think to myself, should I answer this question honestly, or should I, Make up some bullshit. Um, Whatever's but, more entertaining. I think that's the better, you know, whatever, whatever works better the, that way. The funny thing is, is like, who's not amped up to go do what you were trained to do and go fight. And the training only amps you up even more because it's like, you're going to go kick down doors. You're going to go shoot at the bad guys and you're going to, you know, save lives of the people next to you. And so I was deeply into the training, but scratching at the back of my brain was this feeling that like, I didn't want to be that. Mm. Like I didn't want to go over and partake in the bad side of war that you saw, you know, that you read about or that you saw movies about, or, you know, you heard stories about, um, you know, I, I didn't want to do something that went against my morals and values. And so as much as I was amped up, as much as being in that cohort of guys that was like getting ready to go save the world with violence and aggression, there was some reservation. You know, I, I didn't dwell on this and maybe I, sh- I should now. Um, Cause you talked about 
<laughs> going into the Marine recruiter initially and saying, yeah, you know, tell me about the, you know, essentially humanitarian aspects yeah. of the military and what I can do. And I'm a, I, I kind of laugh because I was expecting him to go, well, the thing is, when you shoot a guy's head off, it's amazing. You know, uh, so <laughs> it, it, at this point, I mean, what he first off, what what had you thought? was going to be the humanitarian effects of your military service. I mean, obviously you'd gone, you'd, your MOS was a tow gunner. You've been cross-trained as a machine gunner. You weren't civil affairs. You weren't a Navy yeah. corpsman. You know, yeah. you weren't in a job where there were peaceable applications of it. So, um, and, and I say this as somebody that firmly believes U.S. military forces done more to create peace in the world than, than any other entity. That said, you certainly are the pointed tip of the spear doing what you were doing. You were not the, the softer, kinder nation building side of that spear. So what had you thought you were doing? What, did, what good did you see that was possible given your MOS and given that you're in the Marines at that point? I, I, I was looking at the experience with rose colored glasses, like going out there and, you know, saving civilians and. Mm-hmm. Okay. Stopping the bad guy. Okay. And that's what I wanted the Marines to be. So let's cut to the chase. Was it? No. Okay. I mean, war, the war that we participated in was extremely dangerous, but not because they were insurgents all over the place shooting at us. Um, most of the attacks were attacks of opportunity. So, you know, a couple of guys in a truck pull up, shoot, fire off mortar, and, you know, run away, or a couple of guys in the hills firing off, you know, small arms, your direction, or, um, Odd, the odd rocket attack, a couple of rocket attacks, um, or you know the hum, the the pressure plate you've been driving over every single day, and finally like you see something glinting in the road, and you're like, oh crap, there was a pressure plate here. It was just defective. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah. And then you're driving through on patrol. You're driving through these villages where these people live, and for me, I was trying to make sense of like these people are trying to like survive and go about their day-to-day lives in a war zone. Like, and we're just rolling around in our home bees as fast as we can and as aggressive yeah. as we can, like pissing them off and making their day worse. Like, um, did you feel that? Did you feel you were pissing them off and making their day worse? Or did you feel like there was a sem- semblance of order and a semblance of peace that we're bringing? Albeit we got removing a hornet's nest is a violent job. It's not a, you know, it's not it, one that's going to make it easier. It truly felt like most of the locals were either tolerating us or hated us. Mm. Um, that's fair. Yeah. You know, the kids would run after the Humvees because most of the guys would give them like candy bars or like, right. you know, but you knew their parents were just like, when is this going to stop? Or, you know, are you kidding me again? Um, And, you know, you try to make the best decisions you can while you're out there, of, you know, the little decision-making capabilities that you're given. Um, 
but it wasn't in a lot of ways, it wasn't what I pictured and it wasn't what we were trained for. There was so much nuance to it and so much, so many changing winds that it left me with a lot of questions. Before I ask you those questions, talk just a little bit about what your day-to-day was. What assignments were you guys given? What were you busy doing? We cycled um, between manning the entrance and egress points, um, manning two of the um, high-value water pumping stations and electrical stations in uh, around Fallujah Bay. So, um, and then going on patrols through the main MSR, um, the main roads and the couple of villages that were around uh, to make sure there were, you know, no bad guys. We go on for patrols looking for IEDs. Um, are these dismounted or mounted? Both. Mostly, okay. mostly mounted. I would imagine. Yeah. Um, we would do the odd dismounted patrol where we'd walk the road and just look for wires and stuff. Most were mounted. Um, but that was our that was our day to day. Just uh, how often would you guys go on patrol? When it was our rotation every day, we did two to three patrols a day. Okay. Who are you co-located with? Because this was around the Chris Kyle, Jocko Willink years, right? We um, we straddled. Second uh, Marine Division had just left, and First Marine Division had just come in, okay. like halfway through our deployment. And there were um, there were Brits on base, there were Danes on base, there were Italians on base. Um, I don't remember if there were any. There was a little bit of Army, but it was mostly Marine presence. And those were the, if I remember right, that was the around the time the Army engineers were there putting up like the horizontal engineer company, putting up T walls and ESCOs yeah. and stuff like yeah, that, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, we had we had tons of infrastructure. Yeah. Um, were you, was your unit more outside the wire than most that were there? Were the, uh, were the foreign, you know, the NATO partners and all that, were they kind of inside the wire or was everybody kind of going out all the time and you were just one of many units that were constantly pushing out? Everybody was at at that time, um, Phantom Fury had just ended. And so everyone was engaged in security and stability operations. So people were pushing patrols all the time. Like when we manned, you know, the entrance and egress points, people were constantly, constantly going in and out. Got you. And how funny question. How often were you bored there? Was that, was it a high op tempo or was there downtime? Was there a lot of downtime for you? It was, it was strange. Um, when we were doing patrols, we were, basically running and gunning, you know, 24 mm-hmm. seven. Um, then again, when we were doing like uh stand and post or, um, at one of the, uh, one of the pump houses, you know, it was a lot of standing around and a lot of, you know, just kind of a lot of dealing with the locals. Um, 
when we were man in the entrance and egress points, a lot of our job was to uh, search the locals that were coming on base to do work or to deliver stuff. Um, when we were uh, on posts off base, we were working with the Iraqi army as well. Uh, so we did interact a lot with the locals. How was your, <laughs> how was your artist self? Obviously you'd kind of jettisoned a lot of that in your mind prior to the deployment, but was there a part of you, especially in those quieter moments that was kind of, did you ever give it a thought? Was there ever an ache of like, boy, at this time, somebody is going to on stage doing X, Y, and Z at this, you know, for nutmeg or for one of these other companies I've worked for, did you give it a thought or or did you try not to, or did it just never cross your mind? It came up in weird ways. Um, one of the things I did on my off time was I drew, I sketched, like I would, mm. I got a, like a, a pen and pencil set and like a sketch pad and I would sketch. Um, and then I would ask the locals about art in their country, specifically dance. Um, one of the locals we worked with, uh, this guy, this guy whose code name was Adam, um, was a break dancer because break dancing was big in a rock and he, uh, we spent a lot of time together. And so he would bring me, uh, DVDs of like Iraqi dancing and like Iraqi music videos, um, Lebanese music videos that were big at the time. And we talk about it. Another one of the interpreters that we ended up working with, um, had a dance off with one of our chief warrant officers, uh, who was from Los Angeles and was a really good, like you could do like Michael Jackson's moves perfectly. And so one day in the barracks, they like, he would, uh, the interpreter whose code name was Mo was like doing the robot and doing handstands and splits. And then, uh, the chief warrant officer would jump out and he'd like, you know, do the moonwalk. And, uh, so it, it, it exhibited itself in weird ways that didn't fully fulfill my artistic desires, but still kind of kept it alive. And you were at no point were tempted to jump into a dance off. No, because at the at the time you have you got to realize like I'm still like nobody knows I'm a dancer at this point. Right, like right, and so even even uh, Adam and Adam didn't realize you were a dancer when you kept asking him for dance videos. So I worked with Adam in um because I had a college I was trained on one of the the very technical scanning systems and so Adam and I worked together with one other guy in a tent, and it was just three of us and so I could be like. Yeah, you know, I did some of this when I was back in the U.S. And I okay, did that and so. So you he knew more about you than most of the Marines did. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Blackmailable, extortion, <laughs> extortion quality information that he was carrying. Oh, uh, Adam was gotcha. a good dude. He was pretty cool. That's right. So, and what did he think about that? What did he, what did he, I mean? Did you tell him that it was ballet that you had done ballet? Not really. Um, okay. I just told him, you know, what it, what what I started to tell people was that I did, you know, plays. I did a couple of Broadway shows. Okay. You know, an easy entrance into kind of what my background was. So you had, so, so when you said before that it wasn't until Fallujah that you started to tell people, this is what we're talking about, right? Yeah. I had, um, my roommates in Fallujah, the guys that I stayed with, uh, became, we became really, really close. And one of them in particular, I started to kind of, you know, divulge that I had done plays and Broadway shows. And, um, I was also writing home 
to kind of a listserv and telling people about my experiences and more. Mm. And the director of the Nutmeg Conservatory for the Arts wrote me back and she's like, wow, these are great experiences. When you get back, you should either write a book or maybe you'll choreograph about them. And mm. I was like, huh. And so I started talking with my buddy about, you know, creating the show when we got back about, you know, a guy who grows up as a dancer goes to war. And it was a fantastical imagining that just passed the time as we kind of talked about it back and forth. And was this because he just happened to be co-located with you and you guys got along or did he have a background in dance or performance no, in some way? Okay. Just because he was there, he was a good dude. We like shared an iPod. And yeah. I enjoyed when he'd come back from the gym. Cause like all his favorite songs were different than my favorite songs and vice versa. And we just, you know, run out of things to chat about. So we just chatted about everything and dance came up eventually. Do you still have all those listserv messages that you sent back? Did you keep all those? Yeah, I did. And did they become grist for the mill? Did they end up getting, do you, do you actively consult them for ideas now, or did they end up developing into your initial work when you got back? Um, how much of that has been used? <clears throat> when I started choreographing, um, my first piece was just kind of a, a very broad interpretation about what war looked like for me. Um, it showed a Marine on patrol, had four ballerinas on stage, kind of evoking the things that I felt were important to Marine, like love, home, courage. Uh, and so the, the dancers were meant to evoke that. And then there was this you know, conflict and it was, mm. it was kind of interesting. Um, the next piece I did, well, I started to look into those emails again, um, looked at emails that I had sent home and emails that people had sent to me. And I got a bunch of, um, actors and went into a recording studio in New York and had them record them, uh, as voiceovers and then choreographed the dance that was basically um, the loved ones at home dancing what the letters weren't saying, because it, I don't know if you had this wow. experience, but every, almost every letter I got was extremely uplifting. Everything was great back home. Nothing was going wrong. Blah, 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 blah. Just to keep your spirits up. When you know that like back home, people are grieving, they're, they're lonely, they're uh, anxious that something's going to happen. And every time they don't hear from you, they go nuts. Um, and so we turned that into a dance and put it on stage. Wow. And that's when, you know, people started noticing us and people started looking at us. We were so, telling a different story. You know, some let's take it. Let's take that break now. Cause we're going to segue. We'll segue cool. to the rest. And I'll tell you what, um, dude, you, I'm entirely blaming you. This is 100% your fault. Too damn interesting. Um, there's so <laughs> much, there's, I have so many questions for you. Would you be willing to do like a part two? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Is that cool? So yeah. what what I'd like to do, and um, we'll end the episode now-ish, and I'll just kind of segue that out. But um, what I'd like to do is just, well, let's book a time, um, you know, your schedule permitting. And I would yeah, love absolutely. to pick up from there. And, uh, you know, and and I've got so much more to ask you on that. And, it would be a, and I think this is a perfect stopping point because we took you through Fallujah. Awesome. And then uh, we can pick up from there. Brother, this is this great. great. Yeah. I, I, you know, you're one of the best interviewers I've sat in front of. 
Oh, like, thanks, not only man. do you have the perfect voice, like you made somebody relax just by the tone of your voice, but also your questions are like questions I I haven't I've considered recently, but not in this in this way. I'm glad. I'm really glad. Cause uh, yeah, I mean it's dude, it's a fascinating life, man. It's it's easy mining. So um yeah, I can't wait to talk more. Yeah, we can Rock find another there next week easily. Okay. Awesome. I'll I'll All hit right. you up on email then. Hey, Chris, luck on the meeting. Pleasure. Likewise. Likewise, to be continued, man. This is Sounds just great. Good. All right, brother. I'll talk to you in a bit. <laughs> right. Later. Talk, take care. That was the Savage Wonder of Roman Baca. Part one. There will be part two coming up. That'll be the next episode of Savage Wonder that we release. You've been listening to Savage Wonder, the podcast for warriors and artists and a production of the Veterans Repertory Theater. The opinions expressed do not represent anything or anyone other than the speaker. Check out what's going on with us at vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org. And if you like the written word, if you love reading fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, subscribe to the Savage Wonder Literary Blog at savagewonder.substack.com or at vetrep.org backslash now hyphen playing. Again, vetrep.org backslash now hyphen playing. And you can subscribe to this podcast at savagewonder.podbean.com or at vetrep.org backslash now hyphen playing or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're listening to us on iTunes, we would deeply appreciate your five-star review. You can say whatever you want to us. We always welcome constructive criticism and any kind of feedback. If you could attach it to a five-star review, though, that would be great. We also would appreciate it if you give us a follow on Instagram at VetRepTheater or on Twitter at VetRepTheater or on Facebook at Veterans Repertory Theater. And I know nobody knows how to spell repertory. It is R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y, and theater is the American spelling, E-R, not R-E. So at Veterans Repertory Theater on Facebook. If you want to submit your work to Veterans Repertory Theater or to our literary blog, please go to vetrep.org backslash submissions. As always, thanks to our producer, Michael Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of the Veterans Repertory Theater, see you next time. and We'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.